0: episode 125 of the aggressive progressive podcast no choice let's start the show
1: we are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity
0: all right welcome to the aggressive progressive i'm chris Hahn. do don't forget to follow me on twitter i'm at chris Hahn. like rate and review and recommend this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and if you don't like it You don't have to say anything. It's fine. It's cool. Got a great guest coming up in a little bit, Olivia Troy. Um, You've seen her on MSNBC. If you watch MSNBC at all last year, she's a former uh, Trump administration official who worked directly for Vice President Pence on the COVID-19 task force and uh, left, celebratedly left, uh, the Trump administration. I had a great conversation with her. You don't want to miss it. Stick around for that. I'm sorry. My voice is completely gone. It has nothing to do with the puppy. I was at a wedding all weekend. I mean, it was like an all weekend affair. Uh, so uh, I've got virtually nothing left, uh, but I'm going to get through this because we've got some stuff to talk about, uh, particularly if you're a woman in America or if you love women, you've got a mother or daughter or a friend or a sister, or if you're just a human being who believes in equal rights for everybody what happened in texas and what happened with the supreme court in this country is a travesty and it is going to make choice the issue in the 2022 election and the 2024 election now if if republicans thought that the withdrawal of afghanistan was going to be an issue um you know sorry you you probably shouldn't be so you know much like the taliban yourself in the way you treat women's body in fact. There are, there are members of Congress and members of the Texas state legislature and other conservatives around the country referring to women as host bodies. The Texas ban is absolutely ridiculous. I talk about it with Olivia because it actually came down like the night I was talking to her. But it's a ridiculous thing Going on in Texas right now. They're basically encouraging people to spy on each other and offering a $10,000 bounty for people who will report women or people who are suspected of helping women exercise their right to choose. I, I you know, I mean, a six week abortion ban in and of itself is ridiculous. Most women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. The baby is not viable. It is a complete an utter disregard of the precedent set through Roe v Wade which basically said it was a trimester approach if you read Roe v Wade uh the only person who should have any right in that decision is the woman and her physician in the first trimester the state really doesn't have a right to get involved according to Roe v Wade until the third trimester this is look okay let's have let's have this uh let's have this conversation let's have this debate Let's make this the issue in 2022. You know what? You might not be able to gerrymander around what's coming your way, Republicans, in 2022 because this is a ridiculous law and the Supreme Court now is going to hear a case in Missouri which has a 15-week abortion ban. That, in my opinion, is going to lead to the overturning, complete overturning of Roe v. Wade. But look, they signaled it right now. They refused to... Allow the injunction for the Texas law on standing ground. But you know what? They could have, they could have enjoyed it. They could have and they should have enjoyed it. And if you read Justice Sotomayor's dissent, and you should, it's scathing. It is a complete disregard for precedent. And it has gotten a lot of people mad. And if you thought the women's march that happened after Trump became president in uh, 2021, that one that happened like the day after his inauguration, sorry, 2017, I'm like getting ahead of myself here. If you think that that was a a big rally, get ready. Uh, there's going to be one in October that is going to dwarf that because women now, you know, if you're not awake in this country, if you're a woman and you're not awake in this country to what the right wing is doing to you, if you are a person who believes in equal rights and freedom and liberty, you know, I'm going to go on some libertarian shows. Please defend the actions of the Supreme Court, libertarians. Please tell me how Joe Biden's son is the real problem, libertarians out there. Please tell me how he, him doing art, selling art, is a real problem in America. When these conservative judges who have been appointed by candidates you have supported over the years, who you have helped elect over the years, have now taken away, the liberty of over 50% of our population. It's disgusting. Please tell me how that's okay. It's not. You know who you are. You listen to this show. Don't pretend you don't. It is, it's, it is utter nonsense what is going on. And you know what? I don't want to be too political, but I'm a political guy. It's a gift. It is a gift to the Democratic Party. Let me tell you something, listen to me in California, you better send a freaking message on the 14th in that recall, that ridiculous right-wing power grab. Because let's face it, Republicans can't win when the majority rules, right? So even in a state election, California's recall election, they're trying to elect a governor with less than 20% of the vote. They have put a recall out of Gavin Newsom. And if Gavin Newsom gets one fewer vote to stay, it goes to, who do you want to be governor? And there's 40 candidates. And Larry Elder is the leading candidate. you know who Larry Elder is? You would think he was a white supremacist if he wasn't an African American. How about that? I don't want to call him a white supremacist supporter because I think that's ridiculous. But his radio show is ridiculous. It's performance art because Larry Elder doesn't want to do what I'm doing and try to like talk about issues from the left or the center or wherever Larry Elder really is in his life. But now that's who he is, right? Larry Elder wanted to build a radio career. He wanted to make a living in radio. It's hard to do if you aren't some crazy right winger. But if you're a crazy right winger, people will listen to you. And he is a crazy right winger. At least he pretends to be. And he might be governor of California. If you don't get off your butts in California, and you don't even have to get off your butt, it's the ballot has been sent to your freaking house. Fill it out, vote no, and send it back. Don't vote for anybody else on that ballot. Just vote no. By the way, no candidate is telling me to do this. I am not friends with Gavin Newsom. I do not know Gavin Newsom. I don't, I'm sure, I'm sure there's somebody in his orbit that I once knew, but I don't know for sure. Nobody's telling me to say this is what I'm trying to say to you. What I'm saying is California is going to be in a major crisis if Larry Elder is its governor. Guy who doesn't believe in climate change. I'm sure this Texas abortion law tickles Larry Elder. So let's just get ourselves over to our pen, circle no, and send the freaking thing back today. It's due on the 14th. Get it back let's make this not even close it, it, i i I don't even know what else to say i i this 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 thing is is nonsense but it's a gift to the Democratic party and the Democratic party better hit this hard you better hang this around the neck of every Republican you notice that national Republicans aren't even talking about this they don't want to talk oh oh we don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do we do know what the Supreme court court's gonna do because they just did it they just did it they could have simply enjoined this bill they did not. They should have granted the injunction. They did not. So get ready. Come next, next term, they are going to get rid of Roe completely. It's already gone in one of the largest states in this country. And trust me, other red states are going to try to do the same thing. They're going to try to do the same thing. And you're going to have two sets of laws in this country once again, like it's 1970 when it comes to choice. And that's not right. It's not right. It's particularly affecting poor women and women of color, more than white women who could get on a plane and fly to New York like they could have in 1971 when Roe was decided. A lot of nonsense. It's bad. It's not going to end abortion. It's going to make abortion dangerous. Women are going to die. And by the way, no exception for rape or incense or the, help or the health of the mother in the Texas law. So if you have a tubular pregnancy, you got to carry it till your tubes burst, is the way I read it. And that kills uh, the fetus and the mother. Good luck. Horrible. Horrible. All right, I'm going to take a short break. I've got a great guest, Olivia Troy. You're going to love her. Stick around. Uh, trust me, this is a great interview. Olivia's got a lot of experience, um, and, and I've really, really enjoyed it. Talking to her, so listen to this, and I'll be I'll be back to wrap Really excited to talk to my uh, my guest here tonight. Olivia Troy is a former aide to Vice President Pence. She's been working in Washington since I would say the two early two thousands, um, and she very publicly broke with Trump um, during the COVID nineteen crisis, and has been a outspoken critic of his policies ever since. Olivia, how you doing? Welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Well, I really do appreciate you joining me today. Uh, I'm very interested in your journey. Um, you know, y- you had this role in the Trump administration, um, and-, and really, you've been involved with Republican politics pretty much your whole life. Um, you, you got involved after nine 11, you describe yourself as a John McCain Republican, something I could really respect when I worked in the U S Senate. Um, he was one of the people I respected the most in the U S Senate, including my boss, Chuck Schumer. Uh, and, and I just want to, you know, feel how you came to this moment where it was just like, I've had enough. I've got to leave after all those years in this career you built up.
2: Yeah, so I, you know, I was raised um, in a fairly conservative family, although I am, uh, I come from a Mexican American background. And I I actually grew up on the border of El Paso and Juarez. So I came from a very multicultural upbringing, but, you know, fairly conservative upbringing um, from my father's side and my mom, who's very Roman Catholic and fairly conservative still today. But, you know, I started my career early on at the Republican National Committee. And I, Um, and worked in Republican politics and campaigning for a while early on, and then 9-11 happened. And so, uh, you know, that sort of started to really shape my career and where I was involved in certain areas, whether it became um, foreign policy and especially national security and the intelligence community. And so all of that kind of um, comes to a crescendo when I take an assignment at the Department of Homeland Security right as the Trump administration is coming into office. Mm. Um, now I'll be honest, I had had some, I, you know, there were, there were definitely some moments that gave me pause along the way. I would be very candid with you and say, you know, there were some moments with the tea party of things where I was watching some of the more sort of extreme rhetoric, I would say in narrative kind of surface yeah, and the GOP, um, that really gave me pause. And, um, I started to really kind of take a step back and really start to evaluate people more on a candidate level and what their platforms are really standing for. So fast forward, I, uh, you know, I take this assignment at the Department of Homeland Security. And I'm really I take it because I'm really throughout my career, I've been focused on global terrorism and countering counterterrorism issues. But I really wanted to work on homeland uh, issues, more domestic facing issues like domestic terrorism, right? um, The rise of, you know, I was, you know, very interested in Working on figuring out our, our gun problem in the country, yeah. which I can openly say that because it is very real, and I have worked on the response to a number of mass shootings, and I will tell you that I I carry the weight of those uh, probably every single day. I yep. think about all of the ones that I've worked on, and it's very personal to me, um, especially because there was a mass shooting while I was working in um, the White House. Uh, in my hometown of El Paso, yeah, and uh, my aunt was in that Walmart when it happened. Oh my! Um, and so I can't, I can't tell you what it was like to respond to a, a crisis event like that when you know that your own family member—that's
0: amazing. It's amazing that you're even able to do that. Sort of. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, so you know, I, I definitely was tested. I will say on a very personal level uh, throughout the Trump administration and watching what was happening. We had some very challenging issues that we worked on at the Department of Homeland Security and executive orders that were issued straight out of the gate when uh, Trump gets inaugurated. And there were definitely, I will say, the the coalition of the willing to try to navigate some of these very hard, hard things that came our way. Uh, And so um, that's where I ended up in an assignment uh, in Vice President Pence's office at the time. And I am his homeland advisor and counterterrorism advisor. And then in 2020, um, the COVID pandemic hit. And I was actually on the task force from day one. So prior to, to Pence actually leading it, I had been the representative for the office on the task force and was watching sort of what was happening and tracking things and trying to figure out what direction this was going to take. And then he ends up being tapped to lead it after, um, well, to be honest, after the, the White House is upset when a CDC official comes forward and tells the truth, basically on the news and the stock market plummet.
0: Yeah. 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 All he cared about yeah. it seemed to me in the early days of the pandemic was the stock market. It's all he cared about because he was worried that a falling stock market would mean he wouldn't get reelected. And you know, nobody's really going to die of this, even though he thought everybody yeah. was going to die of it.
2: <clears throat> That's exactly it. It was about, <laughs> it was about economics um, and what it would mean for his reelection. Campaign and so, increasingly, as I tried to navigate this environment, I was a lead staffer for Pence on the task force, and there were just numerous—I can't even tell you—egregious things that happened during my tenure. Watching it, and it was long hours. Um, and look, there was a group of people that really were actually trying to do their jobs, and it was—it became this impossible situation when you're in meetings and you really. You basically, you're not only fighting a pandemic and a virus, and you're trying to figure out how you're going to protect Americans when, it, when it's already here, yep. but you're also facing the biggest obstacle, which is sitting in the Oval Office. And yeah. it's something that you don't, you know, there's no way to practice that in crisis scenarios or exercises. You never actually sort of exercise. And prepare for what happens if the president turns on you. Yeah, I'll tell you for twenty years, of my life—no, did that ever actually happen?
0: I, I—I got to tell you, I had a, I had a, I had him turn on me a couple of times, and I didn't work for him, <laughs> so it was, it actually helped me uh, in my career a little bit. But it was scary the first time it happened. I was like, did the president of the United States just call me out? That is strange. I'm just a regular guy. I don't, I don't work in government anymore. <laughs> I'm getting called yeah. out. But
2: what it like, yeah, how the worst did... part is when you get called out, it's like being doxxed by the President of the United States. That's yeah. Kind of what it is.
0: Yeah. 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 But let me ask you this. So you're sitting in these meetings. How was the heavy hand of Trump being placed on these committees? Like, was Stephen Miller or somebody else coming into the meetings representing the view of the president or did he just come in and start going Olivia Troy stop what you're saying we can't panic the markets
2: (laughs) that's a good impression (laughs) um I think you just you just like triggered my PTSD for my tenure sorry (laughs) um no, I, it, you know, it was a combination uh, sometimes he would show up at the meetings and he would completely derail the agenda yeah. by going off on a tangent, like um, right, where we go down the rabbit hole, on whatever he wanted to talk about or something that he had seen on his preferred network of choice. Yep. Instead of going down the agenda item of, you know, maybe we were supposed to be evacuating people off of cruise ships or maybe we we're making decisions on whether we needed to implement, you know, social distancing or mask guidances or things like that. And other times we would make decisions and then he would come to the podium during a press briefing and just announce the complete opposite. Yeah. Or he would say just crazy counterproductive things or call or call the virus a hoax or, you know, create divisiveness, especially on issues like like a, the mask, the wearing of a mask. Right. And then from day one, this is increasingly that happens, and you, he created divisions that also eroded public trust. And when that happens in a crisis event such as this one, it's really hard to gain it back. And I still believe that we are living the legacy of how huh. that happened during the Trump administration, still today. I,
0: I mean, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. People won't get vaccinated, don't want to wear masks. It's crazy. All right, Olivia, talking about uh, Donald Trump derailing these meetings that were, you know, devised to try to. You know, save the nation from losing six hundred thousand people to COVID nineteen, uh, and you were right in the middle of it. At what point did you actually leave? Did you leave before they? Did you leave before they came up with the reopening plan? Because I thought the reopening plan—I didn't think it was as strict as I would have liked it to be, but I thought it was a reasonable representation of what that should be. And then they—I feel like they just threw it out.
2: Yeah. So I left in August of 2020. And so I did kind of go through that whole effort. And that's actually partially why I make the decision to leave. Um, there was, so, there was there were definitely breaking points along the way where I wanted to walk away so many times. But uh, for the most part, I just felt this responsibility that I had to hang in there and continue to work on this. Because if not me, then who would come after me and right damage what they do
0: right there, there was a lot of that it's a there, real thing there was a lot of that in the trump yeah. administration right if not me then who's coming next what wacko is coming next here
2: yeah and look case in point i mean i watch um i was there at the very beginning with the transition where basically the doctors kind of get pushed out of the out of the picture and they take in scott atlas who's yeah. you know completely out there and yeah, I was there, you know, we did the 15 days and then extended to it to 30 days and it comes 45 days to slow the spread and all of that. But then I think that is the point where I realized that there is pressure being put on the governors, especially Republican governors, to get in line and to open up the country. And there was a coordinated way to do it. And then it just sort of all of those plans go out the window.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
2: it's sort of like, we've got to get back on the campaign trail. We've got to get this moving
0: yeah. They had a plan. I just remember a plan coming out in like April where they said, okay, well if you get to X amount in your testing and you're seeing the cases do this, well then you could open with this and with that. It was somewhat scientific and thought out. And I feel like a week later they just said, forget it. Open the country now.
2: That is right around the time. Exactly. When actually I actually, I personally witnessed a shift and what was happening and at the time. It was, I've got to be honest with you, it was very confusing uh, to kind of figure out what is actually happening here, where we think we're rowing in one direction, but it seems like there's all these dynamics happening that seem to be shifting the narrative. And now they're publicly attacking Dr. Fauci and they're publicly undermining him. Uh, And then, you know, I um, honestly, it was uh, a lot of the changing of the CDC guidances that they really, these people had really no business uh, doctoring. Yeah. No pun intending. Yeah. Um, in terms of they wanted to you get know, people back in churches or when we went to the Department of Education, that was really, I think, one of the breaking points is the pressure of of schools and children, which we're still seeing kind of that. Yeah, it's it's, play out it's happening
0: right now. I mean, yeah. you know, you've got people across this country fighting with their school boards who are trying to protect children by requiring masks in the schools and requiring, quite frankly, people work in schools to get vaccinated. Because the kids, for the most part, can't get vaccinated. It's disgusting. Right.
2: No, and it was. It really just at that point becomes like you're watching this, and you realize that the cost of human life is there, and the danger for Americans. And for someone who spent a lot of time in national security, I just felt like at some point it is hypocritical when you feel like you can no longer push the system or weigh in, and you've set your career sort of dedicated to service, public service and dedicated to protecting lives of Americans. And here you are in the scenario where you know it's high risk and people are getting sick every single day. And the numbers are starting to be astronomical and you just know what's happening. And it was between that and I've got to say on a different, complete, differently topic since I was a homeland person, the events that happened at Lafayette Square yeah. that one day when they did the clearing yeah, was, I think, really... it
0: it was was the most disgusting day you know before january 6th it was one of the most disgusting days i can remember my lifetime in this country uh watching a president gas his own you know people so he could have a photo op a bad photo op by the way uh but a photo op nonetheless i've also never seen a press secretary stand in a freaking photo op that drove me nuts as a guy who's you know been in politics his whole life. Uh, I, I, I didn't get it. I was like, okay, you hired a TV personality to be your press secretary, uh, who I was debating on Fox news three weeks earlier and, you know, making her look like an idiot, but okay. Let her stand in the photo. Uh, it, it, it was yeah. disgusting to me.
2: Yeah. It was the parade of arrogance. Um, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic and then you're attacking peaceful, peaceful protesters for the most part from what I saw. And it was just, horrifying to watch that. And to me, honestly, the, I felt like it was a dictator on parade. Yeah. That's kind of what it looked like to me. Um, and I, at that point, realized that I mean, there is no line that these people will not cross Yeah, at whatever it is and whatever it takes, um, whether it's spreading fear and, you know, doing the back the blue narrative and creating division across cities um, in one of the hardest times in our country and the, the sort of the narrative that they were doing. Um, and, you know, and also the narrative of playing at the Antifa when many people like me and others, you know, there's a there's also a whistleblower filing at the Department of Homeland Security where I mean, people people said that they were downplaying the threat of white supremacy and watching what was happening in domestic terrorism. Yeah. But that was just something that they were not going to obviously.
0: Well, yeah, you can't you can't scare supremacy. white people yeah. by saying white people are the problem. Right. I mean, that's that the entire Trump campaign was scaring white people. And unfortunately, white people were more afraid, you know, enough white people were more afraid of what was happening with COVID-19 and having that maniac in charge, um, you know, to, to, to keep him out of office for another four years. And quite frankly, you know, uh, you know, we'll talk about this on the other side of the break. You know, I think um, but for Texas, uh, we would be talking about Afghanistan for the next two years. And that could be a problem uh, for the Democrats, at least holding the Senate. Uh, if the House is lost through gerrymandering anyway. Uh, And I think it also makes it uh, more likely than not that a Democrat gets elected president in 2024, because quite frankly, I think that this Texas law and the Supreme Court's failure to act on it, quite frankly, basically, which is action, um, you know, becomes the rallying cry for Democrats for the next three years. And I think it actually leads to them holding the Senate and, keeping the White House. I mean, that the House of Representatives may be gone no matter what. But I want to talk to you more about that stuff on the other side of this, because it is scary, the direction these people were taking the country and what they were willing to do uh, with power and how they now want to try to keep it. So, Olivia, let's talk a little bit about Afghanistan. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting tired of this gnashing of teeth for the people who want more war, uh, the same, you know, people who are crying about not getting enough of our Allies out who who didn't lift a finger. You know the the former president made a deal with the Taliban, surrendered to the Taliban. If you ask me, uh, a year and a half ago, and why weren't they getting people out immediately?
2: Yeah, that's a great <laughs> that's a great question. And uh, you know, I have to say that as I watched what was happening in Afghanistan in the uh, most recent weeks unfold. It was hard. It was hard to watch that. You know, I've spent time on the ground in Afghanistan and I kept thinking about our Afghan allies on the ground and what was about to happen to them. But I was really at some point, I just felt so much frustration and anger because I kept I started to see the narrative surface on, you know, from right wing pundits and saying, like, you know, Trump would have done this better Right, evacuate everyone. He would have saved. And I said, you know, no. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) I'd like to say, I'd like them to point to one thing he did good when he was president before they start saying he would do anything better. Right? Like, what did he do that was good? I can't think of one thing.
2: Oh, and then the fact of the matter is, in the Trump administration, they did everything in their power to keep refugees out. Of this country, it was the most anti-immigrant, anti-refugee administration we've had to date. I would say. I mean, they issued executive orders. They went out of their way to really sort of, I would say, devastate these programs that were there for a reason. And I look, I lived this firsthand. I, as I watched some of these images, I kept thinking about. People like the Stephen Millers of the world who had, unfortunately, tremendous power uh, during the Trump administration. How did you
0: stand to be near that guy?
1: I mean,
2: it was he is evil. Yeah. And I don't say that lightly. Yeah. And he is he is a terrible human being who really pushes an agenda that is scary um, and very frightening. And unfortunately, it is even scarier when he has tremendous power because he happens to have the president's ear at the time. Yeah. And I will say when you know, when it comes to the SIV, the special immigrant visas for these Afghan allies, there are people who have been waiting in the process for years. And it is a very cumbersome and challenging process to begin with. But what happened during the Trump administration was when they kept lowering the refugee ceiling cap and they kept kind of, sort of gutting these programs, they were basically moving resources off of them, and they were, you know, taking people out of these offices while they were also pl- placing some of n- some of Stephen Miller's main allies and enablers across the U.S. government. Yeah, and it was making this process that much more cumbersome and harder. And when you you know, go back and you can see the processing times, it's always been a challenging process to get through and. I would say that many of the ways that they get processed are antiquated, but in this scenario, the numbers definitely start to slow, and the processing time I think goes up to over 900 days by the time you get to January 21.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, they didn't make a secret of this either, right? Like Stephen Miller wasn't hiding yeah. the fact that he was doing this. This was his agenda. He did not he did not want anyone who was not from Northern Europe. Frankly, I mean, I'm I'm Italian. I don't think they'd let me in. And it's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's yeah. they, they didn't, they didn't want anyone that wasn't from Northern Europe coming to this country anymore. Like that was what they said. Well, and, they said it out loud.
2: No. And he would say this blatantly in meetings. I can't tell you how chilling and horrifying it is to hear someone express themselves in very senior step, like senior level, even cabinet meetings at times, um, the way he would express himself it was shocking because I've actually, you know, I've been in meetings like this before at that level and I've never heard things said like that ever in my entire career. No, And, you know, and I, I you know, I, I have to laugh in some ways because um, I, I wrote this thread on Twitter where I felt like I had to really remind people of what had happened in the Trump administration because I, I was watching a lot of, to be honest, Republicans try to you know, play revision as history and memory hole in a pit. And I wanted to remind people, like, look, for four years, they had four years to start processing these people when they knew that this withdrawal was coming. yeah, And they did nothing. And um, as I did that tweet, you know, Stephen Miller's wife, I think Katie Miller went on Twitter and called me a liar and all of this. (laughs) And literally that night, I think Stephen Miller goes on Fox News and goes on this anti-refugee, they're all terrorist right. rants. Right. We don't want them here. And right. Like, okay. By the
0: way, I, I was saying <laughs> this myself on television. I was like, how long before they start saying that these people were evacuating are terrorists? How long before, you know, had we not had the, the horrible tragedy with 13 of our soldiers and hundreds of Afghanis getting killed by a suicide bomber, they would be calling the people we evacuated terrorists by now. I guarantee it. You know, they had something else to talk about. So they, you know, that was worse that, that you could appeal to all sorts of Americans about. So they use that now, but trust me, their plan was to call them all terrorists and say, Biden didn't protect us from terrorists.
2: Oh, and it was, it's the classic Stephen Miller talking points that he would espouse uh, throughout four years of the administration, even on the campaign trail when Trump was still running um, the first time around. So uh, you know, and I when I when I see some of these, him, Kevin McCarthy has now made statements sort of referring to this yeah. along the way recently. Um, and again, and he's also, you know, now they're also talking about securing the southern border. When I saw that, I have to tell you, I was like, here we go again. Yep. there yep. are terrorists coming across the southern border. This time it's Afghan. Yeah, and I'm thinking to myself, these people are fearing for their lives <laughs> in Afghanistan. Trying to figure out how they're going to leave the country. Trust me, they're not sitting there mapping it out, saying, "Well, if I can get to the border of the southern, you know, of the southern part of the United States, then yeah. I'm going to cross into the country." And then, ridiculous lunacy is this coming from a person who's in leadership of the, he, of the country
0: he is the absolute worst i uh you know i actually tweeted at joy reed last night she does a segment called the worst and she's kevin mccarthy wins it like all the time she should just name it the kevin mccarthy <laughs> award because he's the worst he's literally the worst human being on the planet he's a he's he's like uh, silly putty. You know, you just push him down on any opinion and he has that that opinion until you roll him up at a ball and push him on another opinion. He's the worst. I mean he changes opinions mid sentence sometimes. I I, I I don't know I don't know what we're gonna do when that guy's speaker of the house because it's looking that way. Although I don't think he'll become speaker of the house even if the Republicans take the majority, but we'll see. I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. You've got a promise to come back uh To this show at some point soon because I got more to ask you and uh, you you're brilliant frankly uh, and your experience is you. your experience is broad uh and 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 very interesting and I want to dive a little deeper into it with you but let's just spend the last few minutes we have together here talking about this bizarre absurd Texas law that bans abortion at six weeks and then deputizes people in like a I don't know, Orwellian scheme to spy on each other and collect bounties. It's, I I mean, I I, I don't understand. And the Supreme Court didn't enjoin it. Uh, Blistering dissent by Sonia Sotomayor. If you haven't read a dissenting opinion at the Supreme Court, please read this one. Um, What is your thoughts? Uh, I think this is absolutely
2: horrifying. I think this is one of the most frightening things I've seen probably, you know, definitely in my, um, in my time of, of literally a, the government of a state, the leadership of a state basically practically putting a bounty on the head of women. Right. I mean, that's kind of how I think about it. It's sort of like what you've created is a dynamic where you have basically people calling each other out and, and you, for what, $10,000 is what I think they've said it at. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, um, I think that this is a frightening sign of what um, is to come as, uh, as the GOP becomes more and more extreme. And I'm really concerned about what this means for the rest of the country in many of these states and the direction that it's going in, especially, given the Supreme Court's um, statements on it. Uh, And I'm, you know, I think it's representative of where we are in terms of the GOP and what they're willing to do. And I've already been very appalled about the, you know, the voting rights thing, um, especially in Texas. And like Texas is my home state. Um, I still call it home, even though I have not lived there in quite some time, but I grew up in Texas and I, I cannot relate to a situation where this is the state that I grew up in. I, the people I felt were always amongst the friendliest and I cannot imagine. Olivia, I, I, I I have
0: spent a lot of time in Texas. I had clients in Texas when I was in college. I spent time at college station, Texas at a conference for student government leaders. I I love Texas. I, you know, I, I have a hard time, you know, seeing how the people that I love down there could be supportive of bills like this. And also Texas is a very 50, 50 state. I think they do voter suppression extremely well in Texas. And that's something that we need to be figuring out here. I have been calling on the democratic party for the last 10 years to dump tons of money into Texas to try to organize it because frankly, it changes the math in this whole country. If you could flip that state back to a D but you know, it falls on deaf ears. I don't get this. And frankly, politically, uh, you know, I, I'm a politician. You're, you're, you, you really are one of the people who make the world work. I think about things in terms of politics. And when I saw this come down, I said, well, the 2022 election is not going to be about Afghanistan. The 2022, 2022 election is going to be about Roe v. Wade. And, that is not good for the Republican Party because women overwhelmingly support Roe v. Wade. And I got to tell you, a lot of men support Roe v. Wade too. So it's a, it's a real problem, I think, for Republicans who thought they could take the Senate. You know, they, They're going to gerrymander their way into the, into the House, but I, I don't know. I, I, I don't see them picking up the Senate. I see them losing the Senate. I could see them losing a senator right now. Like I could see Lisa Murkowski crossing the aisle over this. Uh, and I think she should.
2: Yeah, I think that we are in a time where, uh, you know, I think that there are a lot of um, I do talk to a lot of more moderate um, conservatives or, you know, moderate Republicans or former Republicans. And I think, you know, I hope that you're correct in your assessment, because I think that we need to be united uh, going into 2022, especially. Uh, I think we need to it's going to take the coalition of the willing, as I call it, Yeah. In a united front to really take a stand and push back on this extremism, far right stuff that is happening in our country. Um, And it is it is it's heartbreaking that this is happening in Texas. I think that unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot of uh, especially on social media, just people saying I'm never going to Texas or I'm leaving Texas. And I think that, you know, you know, Abbott, this is on you. Yeah. And I have a lot of anger towards that man for many reasons because of COVID and what he's done. um, Yeah. They're they're tripping
0: over each other to be the worst at COVID so that they can win the Republican nomination. It's ridiculous.
2: Yeah. And look, I mean, there were a lot of people who actually participated on the January 6th insurrection that actually drove up from Texas. I'm very well aware of. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, because of the fact that many of those in leadership of Texas, including, you know, people like Ted Cruz and Gohmert, um, are just, we're basically flat out lying yeah. to people. So, you know, I'm interested in seeing, I'm very curious. I haven't actually seen, has Ted Cruz commented on this? I mean, at the national level, it's very interesting to watch the GOP kind of grapple with this on what's happened in Texas, since it's so blatant, especially it's
0: been their, uh, but on this issue. Olivia, this has been their plan for 20 years, right? They have been working towards this moment for 20 years. I When George Bush got elected president, he made a deal with the with the religious right, back me, and I'll give you the courts. And that deal is why we have this court we have right now, right? He put some of the worst people on the court himself, and then Trump doubled down on it, and now we have this horrible, horrible court, which has got these religious extremists on it. Frankly, they're you know they're like the modern Taliban, in my opinion, the the, the American Taliban, and it is it is. I I, I, it's been their grand plan. So the national Republicans, they could run and hide from it all they want, but the gig is up, right? Uh, It people know now, and this is the issue of 2022 and 2024, frankly. And I don't see any way, uh, but for the Supreme court fully upholding Roe v. Wade and, and finally, and when they actually rule on this Texas law, you know, getting rid of it. And by the way, it'll take years to get to them the way they wrote this opinion, because it's got to go to state court and make its way to the Supreme court. There are going to be no expedited appeal here. This is the issue. I think.
2: Yeah. And think about the lives being put at risk in the meantime.
0: Yeah. It's horrible. What really scares me. It's horrible. And I hate to think of it as a crass political calculation, but that's, you know, how I made my living most of my life. And the, the, the crass politics of this is this is going to motivate Democrats like nothing, like almost as, almost as much as Trump did. Uh, and, um, and that's bad for the Republicans. Um, uh, of course when they lose elections, they'll pretend they didn't lose the election because that's their new thing too.
2: Well, right. And that is where <laughs> their are lives to rub is the fact that they are also, uh, diligently working on these, uh, voter suppression actions in several States. And I, you know, in, in Texas, especially, and I'm really concerned about the groundwork that they're laying, so that they can overturn election results whenever they don't go in their favor, or whenever they don't like them.
0: Yeah, it's horrible. Well, Olivia, this has gone too fast, and you're too good at this. You, you need, you need to do your own thing. We got to, we got to figure that out. We'll talk offline.
2: <laughs> and I'm sorry, to <laughs> your <laughs> listeners for not letting them call in. <laughs>
0: no, 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 no. They had plenty of time to call in earlier. Uh, but it, it, it is, it has been a pleasure. Where can people find you uh, if they want to, you know, read more stuff about you?
2: Uh, They can find me. I'm on social media. I'm on uh, Twitter, uh, Olivia Troy. And um, I'm also currently the director of the Republican Accountability Project. So you'll probably see me hammering on some of the worst of the worst and calling them out and, uh, you know, just repeatedly asking for these people to be held accountable and really telling people to take a stand against them.
0: Well, you're doing God's work in that. And I truly hope that it works, because frankly, I know there are good people in the Republican Party. Who I might not agree with on policy, but I never thought that they wanted to destroy this country. Unfortunately, people who want to destroy this country are now in control of the Republican Party, and they need to be defeated, right? and I you know, wish you Godspeed on that. Olivia Troy, thanks for joining me. All right, I'm back. I hope you enjoyed that interview. She was great. Follow her on Twitter. I'll tweet her out with this broadcast, but she gave you a Twitter address. Go back and, you know, copy it. You got it. Um, she's fantastic. She's awesome. And uh, I'm going to have her back probably in a couple months uh, on the podcast. I might have her on the radio show before that. Lots of stuff going on with radio. I'm going to have some announcements in the next couple of weeks. So stick around for that. I know I say that all the time. Then I do a show somewhere else and then it gets canceled because I say something that somebody doesn't like. But don't worry. <laughs> it's uh, Eventually somebody will keep me. I mean, I'm not going to go out there and just be some conservative tool like Larry Elder. He's just a conservative tool being used by conservatives to try to break California. And trust me, they will break California. I know I said this at the beginning of the show. I'm going to say it again because I'm only with you one more time before the California recall election on the 14th. He will break California. You better make sure he doesn't. And I get it. I've got a lot of listeners in California. Lots. It is my second biggest state uh, next to New York. By the way, third, Texas. So love you in Texas. Texas. We're going to fix this. We're going to flip Texas. This has got to be the motivating cry to flip Texas. And you know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. We need to put some resources into Texas to turn it blue. It is a 50-50 state. Its demographics are remarkably similar to California. And California is a state Republicans don't even bother with other than these stupid recalls which happened way too often, and need to stop. California, when this is done, when you when you beat back this recall, you got to get the recall out of your system. Get rid of it. It's stupid. Elections, we have a republic in this country. It means you elect people and you have a process to remove them if they do something wrong, but this recall nonsense where you can get a million signatures, 1.5 million signatures in a state with 40 million people, Gavin Newsom could get unelected with a fraction of the votes that elected him. People aren't paying attention. You better be waking up in California. Here's my deal. California, I've got thousands of listeners in California. I want you all to vote and I want you all to call 10 people. And that's it. You're done. Save it. Save yourself from Larry Elder. Anyway, it was Labor Day weekend. Um, you know, I'm a product of organized labor. My dad was a teamster. I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think we do enough in this country to recognize how important the labor movement has been to us. So make sure you take a moment, uh, you know, if you haven't already, and thank someone who's in a union. Because quite frankly, but for unions, we'd be working seven day weeks. We would never have health care. We would never have time off, paid sick leave, you know, vacations. We wouldn't have living wages in this country, and, and frankly, you know, we're talking about how uh, the uh, the federal benefit has ended. The three hundred dollars unemployment benefit has ended uh, right on Labor Day. It ended. And I know I have mixed feelings about it. I know that there are some people who can't go back to work and I know that there are some people who want to get a living wage. What we really needed to do is have a living wage passed in this country. I know that there, you know, I've been talking to a lot of business owners who are having a hard time getting people to come back to work and maybe this is going to get people to come back to work, but I think we need a living wage in America. and And here in New York, people pay living wages for the most part and they're still having problems. So we'll see if the end of this Uh, unemployment benefit sparks people to come back to the workforce maybe it'll spark people who are not vaccinated to get vaccinated and move on Uh, I went on a big rant on this on my radio show I'm not going to do it again because quite frankly I got no voice I mean I'm really I'm struggling today you probably could tell but it's getting better it's getting better so uh well look I really do appreciate all the support you've been giving to me. I really do. Keep telling your friends about this podcast. And I want to remind you, as I always do, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, even me. Seek the truth. I know it's out there. And I know you'll find it if you look for it. And I'll be back here again next week to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast.